Good evening, everyone. My name is Brian Williams. If we have not met before, I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. I am also the director of the Young Adults Ministry. Uh, Sarah and I kind of spearhead most of the things that happen within this community. Um, and tonight I get to preach, so I'm excited about that. I, I, if you're new here and you're like, what? Where's the other Brian? Um, he's louder than you. You're right. <laughs> he is louder than me. Um, Brian and I, uh, we actually share preaching duties. He carries most of the load, and then I come in from time to time. And uh, it's just an awesome thing that he and I um, get to be a team. I don't know how else to put it. Uh, I, I'm bringing this up because I talked to someone earlier who was like, oh, you preach? I was like, oh, yeah, I do sometimes. And um, so it just made me realize maybe not everybody knows kind of the structure of things or how we fit together. But Brian and I are, are really a team in terms of preaching. He's the teaching pastor here at Calvary, and so he carries the load. But one of the neatest things that I, I think is so clearly reflected in the two of us and how we preach and how we teach and how we come together and serve is that we're not all the same. But God still uses us. And we're actually better off that we're different. So I love how Robbie even just prayed that God would unify us. That God, you would unify us. Because, man, we got to be brought together. And as we're brought together, the differences we have are going to do something wonderful when our focus is, is solely focused on Jesus. When we take and we submit all of our differences, all of our desires, all of our giftings, all of the things that we've been given, and we submit them and we surrender them to the call and the kingdom of God, Jesus is going to bring all of us and all these gifts, all these talents, all these abilities, all these personalities, all these styles. He's going to bring it together and channel it for something incredible that the world can't deny that he is with us, that he is among us, and that he is able and capable to do incredible things. I just bring that up because I think it's important, I guess. That's why. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate the encouragement. Well, uh, tonight we're talking about money. And Brian started this last week, uh, our, this series called Money Matters. And tonight we're continuing talking about saving and spending. We're going to be in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, go and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. In verses 19 to 24 is where we're going to hang out. So go ahead and get there. Brian uh, actually preached on these first three verses that we're going to do right now, 19 to 21. Uh, he touched on them last, last week. They should be familiar to you if you're new to the Bible. Um, if you've been in church for a while, this should not be new to you. It should be very familiar. But I hope that tonight as we look at this, uh, our, the depth of our understanding would be refined. That's my hope. So, chapter, nine, or chapter 6, verse 19. This is Jesus talking. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the crux of these three verses right here, and even this whole passage, that where our treasure is, that is where our heart is. Our treasure reflects our direction. It reflects where we're going. Our passage tonight is about direction. It's about trajectory. 
See, all of this that we're going to be reading, it comes in the middle of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. You've probably heard of that before. In the book of Matthew, it's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And our passage, 6, 19 and 24, lives right smack dab in the middle of it. These first three verses, 19 to 21, speak of treasure. And there's an obvious financial connection between what the Sermon on the Mount is driving at, what Jesus is trying to call us to and direct our attention to, and our financial values. They're connected. They're linked. In the Sermon on the Mount, we get a picture of what it looks like when someone is participating in the kingdom of God. When someone is submitted to Jesus, submitted to the King And in this kingdom, in this kingdom that God has established that Jesus is king of, and by kingdom, what I mean is like God's rule, God's dominion, his authority to participate in the kingdom of God is to submit to his sovereign rule, to submit to his will, to his authority in your life, such that wherever you go, his kingdom goes with you. As believers, we're to have the kingdom of God strapped to our heels, that the values, principles, authority of God travels with us wherever we go because we are submitted to him, subjects of his kingdom, children of the king. So, that's kind of the kingdom thing. In this kingdom, all are welcome. All of us are welcome. And not because we've reached some moral threshold, not because we've, we've achieved the right status or gotten the right percentage of the votes or something like that, right? But because Jesus is good. That's why we're able to enter the kingdom, because Jesus is good. And the Sermon on the Mount sets this lofty moral standard. And if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard portions of this. Uh, maybe even if you haven't grown in church, you've opened your Bible a few times, you see things and you're like, man, this is like, how can I achieve that? It's so far beyond me. That's kind of the point. Fulfilling this standard is not a prerequisite for entering the kingdom, but it marks the person who has entered the kingdom. It gives trajectory, it gives direction for the person who has entered the kingdom. See, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the trajectory of the life of the one who has become a child of God through belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for your life. The Sermon on the Mount defines the direction towards which a Christian's life and action and thoughts ought to be moving. We enter the kingdom not because we're good, amen, but because Jesus is. Double amen, amen, amen. (laughs) In response to that great gift, that new identity that we get through faith in Jesus, that gift we've been given, we ought to be progressing more and more in bearing fruit that aligns with the principles and perspectives of the king. Now, when Jesus gave this sermon, he he knew that the king, that he himself, was going to be rejected. And that the kingdom he was offering was going to be postponed. You see, We, now, all of us, we are in the in-between. Jesus came as the king. He came humbly. He came submissively, and the world rejected him, even murdering him on the cross. And Jesus willingly accepted this rejection, this 
like dumbfounding condemnation in order to free the subjects of his kingdom from what once bound them. To free us from the sin and depravity that kept us captive, that kept us from the kingdom. The rejection of Jesus accomplished so much. It lowered like the drawbridge. It lowered the drawbridge so that the subjects might once again be in the presence of the king. And a day is coming. A day is coming when the king will again ride out of that castle and show himself to the world. Only this time it will be in power. And rejection of his lordship won't be an option for anyone. I explain all this. You're like, why are we talking about this? I explain all this. One, because it's important for us to understand and recognize where we fit within this whole thing. Understanding that we're in this in-between helps us navigate the scriptures as we read it and understand what it is we're called to and also why we face the challenges we face. I explain this because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, knowing his subjects, us, would be in this in-between state between the announcement, the opening of the kingdom, and then the final establishment of it. Jesus gave instruction in the Sermon on the Mount on how to live out kingdom values in a foreign land, in a world that has has and continues to reject him. In a world that rejects him and will tempt us to do likewise. The allure of earthly treasure is a snare for those of us who are waiting for the king. It's a snare that can grab us and rob us of so many of the promises and benefits and beauties and treasures of the kingdom. Jesus gives guidance so that we might have trajectory and purpose. That in this in-between, we wouldn't just be aimlessly waiting for his return, but actively pursuing, enjoying, and advancing his kingdom to the day he calls us home. In Matthew 5, 13 and 16, Jesus defines his subjects. He defines us, those who have put our faith in Jesus, as salt and light. We are to contrast the world. We are to penetrate it with the truth of the kingdom and preserve the realities of the kingdom. This is a challenge for those of us who put our faith in Jesus. We are his representatives. And our purpose is to be salt and light, to have a dynamic impact on society, to serve the king and not ourselves, and to bring forth fruit for God. The challenge of it is, uh, the challenge for me as I've been preparing this whole week, man, I've been like, which this happens if you, if you ever get a chance to, to open scripture and then somebody encourages you or challenges you to teach other people about it, which by the way, I think we all should be doing that. You're going to get wrecked, okay? Because when you suddenly have to tell other people about things, you have to take them seriously yourself. And you're like, dang. And this week I've gotten wrecked. <laughs> I've gotten wrecked because the challenge of this whole message tonight is basically this. Are we fulfilling our purpose? The things that are so blatant and clear, am I fulfilling this purpose? Am I living for myself? Am I dynamically impacting society for the king and for the kingdom? Am I bringing forth fruit for God? Am I being purposeful and proactive in the kingdom of God or am I being useless as far as God's purposes are concerned? That's the challenge I've been levied with. And I think I'm supposed to levy it on all of you. <laughs> Sorry. Our passage tonight, 
Matthew 6, 19, 24. It's right in the middle of this whole discourse and its focus, its subject is wealth in the material world. Money matters. How we view material wealth, not just what we do with it, but how we view it is either congruent to the realities of the kingdom of God or it's in opposition to it. Unless we grasp the significance of these verses tonight and operate by their truth, we will fail to fulfill our purpose as the people of God. It's a high call. We're called to be ambassadors of Christ, emissaries of the kingdom that is coming. So looking at verses 19 to 21, what does this reveal to us about the trajectory of a purposeful life? What does it reveal to us about saving and spending money in this in-between as faithful followers, faithful subjects of the king? Well, there's two commands, right? It's pretty straightforward. There's two commands right at the top. One's positive, one's negative. So the first one, what do we not do? What do we not do? Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. To store up earthly treasure in an effort to mitigate your present insecurities is foolish. In the Greek, we might interpret this to stop letting this be your focus or never let this be your focus. To treasure up, to store, to hoard, to stockpile these futile, meaningless things for you and you only. The for yourselves is such an important qualifier here because this is not a reprimand for saving with a view for rainy days or retirement. Throughout the Bible, actually, people are commended for planning well, for for having foresight and self-control specifically in financial areas. And we'll talk more about that. To save is not the problem, but to make wealth your goal, to make earth your home and the things of this world your security blanket. To use the things of this world to insulate yourself from the values and faith correspondent to the kingdom. That's the issue. And hear me, it doesn't matter how big your savings account is, or how much money you make, or don't make, or how comfortable your life is, or uncomfortable your life is. You can fall victim to this ignoble aim. (laughs) Brian talked about it last week. I think we all got convicted and walked home going, wow, I'm really greedy, I guess. To store up your earthly treasure in an effort to mitigate your present insecurities is foolish. Especially when these things are so obviously temporary, right? They're so obviously temporary. Change and decay are all around us. If we weren't so blind, they would be a constant reminder and check on the value system that drives our lives. Things decay. They're stolen from us. They get left behind whenever our short lives end. Earthly security is like a, that's like a self-refuting statement. Earthly security. And the Christian who pursues earthly treasure as a refuge from life's pain and, and, and inevitabilities, the, the things that are going to come at us is, is like, it's like, You're just in some sort of cognitive dissonance. It just doesn't equate. It just doesn't go together. This sort of stuff that should shift our trajectory, the the knowledge of these things should shift our trajectory and redirect us when we recognize this, when we read that first, first verse, 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And I'll sum up the back because it all goes away. (laughs) 
It should redirect us. It should shake us to, to, to aim differently. The recognition of the brevity of life and the constant insecurity of wealth points us towards the eternal realities of the kingdom of God, or it ought to. To store up earthly treasure in an effort to mitigate your present insecurities is foolish. It's so foolish. So I say to you and to myself, stop it. Just stop. Stop trying to do that. It's like a dog chasing its tail, man. We're getting nowhere when we try and do that. So what should we be doing? Second part of this, verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what should we be doing? Storing up treasures in heaven. Now this means to have faith in the realities and promises of heaven. It means to have faith in heaven and then live like it. You know, there's a rather prominent author and speaker who, um, when asked if he believes in God, his disciplined response is, is always, he's always, he's so consistent in this. Well, I live as though God exists. And people push back on him in this and, they, and they, they challenge him in it. And they even, you know, well, do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And he's so disciplined in saying, I live as though Jesus rose from the dead. I live as though the Bible is the word of God. And this is like, like in a way, this should be, it's such an obvious answer. Like it should be an obvious answer to us. Yet somehow it's profound because how we live reveals what we truly believe. How you live reveals what you truly believe. And have you looked at your life and considered, does it fit with what you say you believe? This is the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount. Is your life, the trajectory of your life, heading towards the standards Jesus sets forth here? And if not, then there are beliefs you are still clinging to that are in competition with your belief in him. And it's time for that belief to come under his lordship. To be laid down and cast aside. To take up something truly valuable. To lay up treasure in heaven looks like using your God-given potential as a good steward of that which God has given you. Be it your time, your treasure, your talents, whatever it is. And so the question, how are you investing those things that God has given you, those assets God has given you, because we're all investing them somewhere. And you can't have two masters. You know, one of them will always win out. Which one is it? I actually, like, used to think, like, oh, I don't know, you can kind of have two masters, but you, like, that doesn't work, actually. Like, it really doesn't work. Ultimately, one of them is going to have to win out, because at some point, they're going to come in conflict. Which one, is, which one wins out when they do conflict with one another? That's the real master. You can only have one. The fleeting experiences of this short life, is that your master? Or the eternal realities of the creator, of our King Jesus? Now, I'm talking about saving and spending. That's what our subject is tonight. I gotta say, saving's not evil. Maybe you read this passage or we've walked through this and you're like, so wait, should we not save anything? What? Saving's not evil, and neither is spending. 
Saving and spending are not evil. I mean, spending, like, what else is money for? Like, why else would you have money unless we were to spend it, right? It's meant to be spent. But why and how you save or spend speaks volumes about your values. And that's what Jesus is driving at with this passage. As Jesus is calling us to have kingdom values, as emissaries of the kingdom of God in this dark and temporary world, we, treat, we are to treat the resources in our possession as the king would treat them. So, how, how do we save or spend money in a way that honors and reflects the king? Well, in the coming weeks, next week, uh, we're going to talk about debt and investing. Brian will be up here. And then the week after that, Troy will be up here talking about uh, generosity and giving and all that. But tonight, with our focus on saving and spending, I think the most practical uh, concept to begin with is called margin. And not margarine, but margin. A kingdom mindset pursues margin. Before we even get to saving or investing or even generosity, there needs to be some margin, some gap, some cushion between what comes in and what goes out. That's what margin is. The problem is the majority of us forsake margin and kingdom values for comfort, for convenience, for notoriety. We forsake margin and the opportunities it provides, the heavenly treasures that can flow from it. We surrender that for temporary earthly values for things that are passing away, things that will quickly be judged as meaningless in Christ's kingdom. The trajectory, the mindset we are given here in Matthew 6 is to align ourselves uh, and align ourselves with is one that pursues margin. In Proverbs 21.20, we read, The wise store up choice food in olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Now, it's not saying that olive oil is like the best thing you could do. You've got to understand this written in context, right? You know, Middle East, a couple thousand years ago, olive oil was a big deal then. It's basically money. I heard a pastor paraphrase this verse this way. He says, wise people have plenty left over because they don't spend all they make. And on the other hand, fools spend all they get and maybe even more. Pursuing margin looks different than pursuing status or self-fulfillment. There's self-discipline involved. So if a kingdom mindset pursues margin, how do we get margin? Well, number one, you got to recognize your choices and adjust them as necessary. Now, this is the most basic thing to doing life responsibly. This doesn't just apply to money. Recognize the choices you're making and change them accordingly. (laughs) Evaluate them, change them. You have so much more control over your life than maybe you realize. Talking about margin, though, the math of margin is really easy. We can all do it. Spend less than you bring in, right? Like, it's pretty, like, you all know it. We all know this. Even if you haven't been in, like, a finance class, you're like, that's probably a good thing to do. Like, spend less than I bring in. Oh, I get it, yeah. So spend less than you bring in. Now, one thing you can do here is bring in more, right? You can bring in more. And sure, I think we've all longed for that. <laughs> like we, we're probably all actually striving for that. Trying to get more. Whether those motives are noble or self-serving or whatever it is, I think most of us would look at this, spend less than you bring in, and we, the simple answer is, oh, okay, like bring in more. Like that's the simple answer. 
And that's the one we, we strive for and, and try to achieve. You know what? Forbes did a survey a few years ago um, of its readers, and it asked them, how much money do you need to make to be content? And with remarkable consistency, people responded with a number that was about twice their current, what they currently made. If you're thinking that yourself, if you're answering that question yourself, in all likelihood, you probably thought of a number that was about twice what you currently make. At least if you're consistent with the people who read Forbes. I don't know. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're way more ambitious than them. Isn't that weird, though? Right? The person making 40,000 a year, the person making 100,000 a year, a million a year, 10 million a year, they all thought, if only I had about what, twice what I make, I'd be content. Right? The person making 40 thinks, if only I made 80, I'd be set. The person making 10 million thinks, if only I made 20 million, then I'd be set. There's always a desire to bring in more. And while that seems like the simple answer to margin, it's not. You see, the point is, when I just said, the person who makes 10 million and thinks, if only I made 20, I'd be set. And you're like, judging them. Like, come on, man, what, 10's not enough? But you're doing the same thing with your $15 an hour. You make something. You have that same mindset. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, is to recognize that we're not, we're not better than people because we make less. Brian talked about that last time. That the greed that undergirds so much of what we strive for is more present in our lives than we might recognize. And if only we would recognize it and come awake to it, we might finally pursue God the way he intends and impact us, the world the way that we truly can. The real answer to margin is found in the other side of the equation. The side you have infinitely more control over, and that's what you spend. Two points here about how to get margin and what you spend. One, assess your expenses. This is the most basic thing, right? I'm just going to, like, over, there's so many places we could go here, but just some, some, basically, many of us spend money on things we assume are necessary. We assume they're necessary, Right? These are choices that we falsely assume are compulsory, as if we have to do it. Simple example, eating out. You're like, well, all my friends eat out, and if I don't eat out with them, then I don't have friends. And that's real sad, right? You're like, man. If your friends eat out or get like $6 coffees on the daily, that doesn't mean you have to do that too. It doesn't. You have a choice. Do something with that choice. And if they're giving you a hard time about it, maybe get new friends. I don't know. You know, what about media subscriptions? Like Netflix is not mandatory for life. It's not. It's not mandatory. Like during quarantine, you're like, no, no, it's mandatory. It's not. Even during quarantine. It's not. It may feel like it is, but it's not. Neither Spotify Premium or Apple TV or Final Fantasy, or maybe you're really into WoW, you know? If you, some of you are like, I don't know what WoW is. The people who know are like, oh, I know. <laughs> like, we, we somehow trick ourselves into thinking these, these are, we're obligated. We, these are necessities. I have to have these things. I can't live without this. I have to spend this money. Even internet, like... 
Right? It sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. But even internet's not necessary. And that, that's probably mind-blowing, like to not have internet in my house? How do, how do you live? But, it, but it's not. Like that, that $60 a month, that internet bill, you and your roommates split up every month, I'm, like it's not necessary. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that you have to get rid of it. That's not what I'm saying. But I want to challenge us to acknowledge that it's a luxury you're choosing. You're choosing it. And I speak from experience, okay? So my wife and I, when, when we first got married, uh, we had to weigh this stuff, man. We lived in the mountains. I worked at camp. Like, we, we, li- we were living on just my income. And, and I didn't make much money. And we had to make choices. And some hard ones. One of which we ended up making was to not have internet. And it was inconvenient. It was inconvenient. But in reality... If there was something that I needed to do, I could do it the next day when I went into work. I could drive down the mountain and go to a coffee shop where I could get Wi-Fi. Like, we didn't need internet. And that inconvenience was the difference for us at that time, was the difference for us from having the margin to continue to sponsor a compassion child. Like, that's a big deal. That's a choice we made. It also gave us a bit more buffer in case the car broke down or whatever. You know, the, the other thing about it, this is kind of a side note, but also not having internet was the best way to start our marriage. Like those first four years of marriage where we didn't have internet, was, that was a huge blessing. There's so many distractions and things that were thrown out the window to where we actually, you know, what are we going to do tonight? Well, let's talk. Let's go on a walk. Let's read a book together. Let's do all these things. And some of you are like, that sounds so boring. (laughs) But you know what? That's actually where life is. That's actually where the things that last is. That two hours you spent watching whatever show Really, what did, what did the world gain from that? Internet's not necessary. All right. <laughs> like I said, I'm not, my, my point isn't, isn't to say that internet or eating out or Netflix subscriptions or any of that stuff is contrary to the kingdom values. That's not what I'm saying. But I think it is safe to say that spending money on things uh, compulsively as though they are necessities when they are not, is contrary to kingdom values. Recognize your choices. And if, if margin in your finances is the difference between getting a double-double fries and a drink tonight after service, or just having a water, enjoying your friends, and eating a PB&J when you get home, then maybe the second option is the right one. All right? Assess your expenses, make the necessary choices so that you can engineer some margin into your life. Okay, the second point here. Thanks for walking with me through this, guys. Appreciate it. Is decouple income and lifestyle. Decouple income and lifestyle. There's an interesting term that I heard uh, that was coined by, um, uh, I don't know his name. So coined by somebody, but it's an interesting term. It's called the affluent poor. 
The affluent poor are an ever-increasing economic block of people. And I don't know the statistics, but I assume it's a common position for people in this area. Where their annual income qualifies as affluent, but their razor-thin margin effectively renders them poor. That despite their wealth, they live paycheck to paycheck, anxious, anxious and preoccupied with grabbing every penny they can to make ends meet. These are people who have linked income and lifestyle as if they go together and can't be separated. With every raise, with every promotion, the math automatically looks something like this. That raise equals early Christmas for me. Promotion, those boots I've been wanting. Tax return, a weekend in a nice hotel. Inheritance, a new car. Now these aren't bad things, but... If this, for you, is the, the obvious, you're like, well, yeah. If this is the obvious default math for you, then there might be a problem with your trajectory. When your income increases, does your spending equally increase? Does your standard of living perpetually equal your income so that you have no margin? If you get a raise, yet continue to live at the level you did before the raise, you just gained margin. And with that margin, there is freedom, my friends, freedom. And that's what Jesus wants for us, is freedom, the freedom to live in his kingdom, how he calls us to, and not be slaves to anything else. There's freedom to exercise wisdom, like saving, and to have the bandwidth to increase generosity. And again, personal experience. Amy and I, when we first got married, lived off just my income, as I explained before. And thankfully, praise the Lord, we, were, we went to a church that talked about money. And in a sermon, our pastor talked about margin. That's where I get this wisdom. It's not my own. And he shared it with us. And Amy and I committed ourselves to following through with the wisdom that others had shared with us, to not being foolish and discarding it. And so when we became a two-income household, we decided to continue to operate off just my income, at least for the most part. You know, we weren't stingy misers, but we were intentional. And obviously, right, by having two incomes, but maintaining a lifestyle as though we just had one, our margins expanded significantly. We were able to meaningfully increase our giving, increase our generosity to, to, in various ways. Some organizationally, some to the church, some interpersonally. We had the bandwidth to do it freely, unhindered. We had the bankroll to do it, the capital. We also had the, the meaningful ability to build savings that became the down payment for our house. And I can say confidently that, that of the inconveniences or things we went without, we don't regret it. We, don't miss, we, we didn't miss out on anything. All we did was gain. In fact, we learned so many things through that time and experience. We, we learned contentment and experienced it. We learned surrender and we experienced the peace of God. Heavenly treasure is not limited to those things that we receive on the other side of death, a part of the heavenly treasure that we strive for and that we get when we 
aim our trajectory towards these things that Jesus is pointing out, is the blessings of godly living that we experience here. They pay dividends into the quality of our lives here and now. It's worth it. The treasure is not just to come, but it's here and now. So do you have margin? If not, what can you do about that? What self-control can you exercise? Is the aim of your future more of this trivial stuff? Or is your trajectory toward margin and towards, uh, towards the advancement of what is righteous and God-honoring? Proverbs 12.9 says this, Better a nobody and yet have a servant than pretend to be a somebody and have no food. Proverbs can be funny. Yeah, obviously. I'd rather have a servant than not have food. But somehow we live like that, pretending to be things, being affluent and poor. We're missing out on so much that God can do with us and do through us. If only we surrender to him and truly believe in him. So those are a couple ways to get margin. And once you've got margin, what do you do with it? Well, next week, Brian will talk about investing. And, and the week after that, Troy will discuss giving and generosity. But also saving is good. Saving is good. Saving, biblical saving, is accumulating appropriate material resources for a defined responsible purpose. A wise person does this. As you work and God provides you with income, he expects you to pay your taxes, you know, give to his work, meet your present needs. But there's more. He makes it clear that it is wise and righteous to set some of this aside to prepare for upcoming needs. It's biblical and wise to set aside resources today for the needs of tomorrow. Proverbs 6, 6-8 says, Go to the ants, you sluggard. <laughs> See, funny. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. There is wisdom in preparing for what might lie ahead. Saving means operating in the tension of the in-between. We are to be cautious of finding comfort in our material security, but not ignorant of the realities of this material world. We're in a weird place being in this in-between. And it's hard. And that's why Jesus has to coach us and give us help, give us direction, encourage us to constantly check our spirit and our desires, our beliefs, what are we, our values, what are we pursuing? Because in so many ways, we could be doing the same things, but doing them in different ways and accomplishing different ends, even if it looks the same on the outside. It's a weird tension for us to be in. And, and that's where I can't solve it for you. Only the Spirit can. So bring yourself before Him. Bring these things before Him. See what He has to say to you. See what He reveals to you. So what are some responsible reasons to save? Okay, well, one, and these are, these are like my things, okay? These aren't, I didn't like go through the, there's not a Bible verse that correlates to all these, okay? This is like, how can I help you? <laughs> like, just don't want to give you like these grand principles and no like practical help. So here's some practical help, okay? One, responsible reasons to save. A big expense that constitutes a necessity, all right? So down payment on a house, maybe, maybe that's it. 
Or maybe you need a functioning car so you can get to work. Uh, These are big expenses that, if prepared for, actually position you for greater kingdom impact. You know, for my wife and I, our house, we, we have a mortgage that is locked in. So we're not subject to rent hikes. And one day, it'll be paid off. So as the years go on, we will increasingly have financial flexibility that can be leveraged for the kingdom. Saving for that down payment was kingdom-oriented saving. Another reason, another responsible thing is to save for the unexpected. Now, today, nowadays, if I just Google, like, you know, how much should I have in savings? Like, the general rule, the consensus is, is basically have three to six months worth of your fixed expenses and savings. Three to six months of your fixed expenses and savings. So that if you lose your job, uh, unexpected medical bill, or suddenly have to care for a family member, or your car dies, or whatever, you've got something to bridge the gap. Or if someone in your small group has a financial hardship, or God shows you a need you could cover, you've got the capital to answer that call. In three to six months, you might be like, oh my gosh, that's impossible. I can't do three to six months. It seems like a lot, because it is a lot. Like, that's a lot of money. It's a ton of money. No matter how much you make, that's a lot. But as Proverbs 13, 11 suggests, the one who gathers faithfully, little by little, will see it grow. So start with 10 bucks each paycheck. You know, have, have a separate savings account and just keep adding to it. And that diligence will add up. It will keep the wheels moving when the, the bridge gets shaky. The one caveat maybe for this is, is if you have debt, and Brian will probably talk about this next week, but there's some things related to debt. And anyway, debt stinks. Right. Those of you with student loans are like, amen. Amen. Brian will talk about that more last week. Another caveat is that if, if and this is the heart of this whole message, coming back to it, I guess, is just that, that if saving trumps generosity, your trajectory is off. Your trajectory is off. Because even in saving for these things, our call is to value heavenly treasure over earthly treasure and trust God to provide. Now, when he leads us or prompts us to relinquish this stuff, saving should supplant faith. Faith should supplant saving. There you go. We got it. All right, verse 22. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Our devotion has its source in vision. We are, we are focused. Uh, where we are focused is where we're going. And that which we behold, that which we believe, gives rise to what we are devoted to. The human eye gives light to our bodies. It it informs us so we can make careful choices in where and how we walk. Likewise, our spiritual vision, our beliefs, affect how we walk and what we do with our lives. So the question, has this world blurred your vision of heaven's value? Has it corrupted what you desire or strive for? Where you're focused is where you're going. And this, this plays out in how we spend our money. You know, if we're always trying to save a buck or fearful that of what may befall us, 
we may be just as focused on earthly treasure as the next guy. See, God's not a miser. He's not Scrooge. And it's unbecoming of his subjects to take on that mindset. While we shouldn't be frivolous, we equally shouldn't be miserly. To do so is a corruption of our vision. It's to be, it's to be uh, our devotion is pulled from faith in God and his provision and his goodness and the security we find in him to what we can do for ourselves. In Proverbs 28, it says, The stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. When we think like this, when we think in stingy terms, when we're like holding on to everything we get, as if, every, as if there's nothing left or there never will be, the poverty that you're fearing on earth is actually nothing like the poverty you may be experiencing in that moment in the spirit. You're missing out big time on the freedom and life and joy that God intends for you to have. In your stinginess, recognize that it's no less greedy or earthly minded than frivolousness. In Ecclesiastes, the wisdom recorded notices uh, that we have been provided for with things that are to be enjoyed. So just a few practical tips on spending. Again, this sort of just is, I'm just trying to give some practical things on how we spend our money. Three of them, actually. So one, the cheapest option isn't always the best option. Just some practical wisdom here. I have a Columbia jacket that was quite expensive. It's quite expensive. And I bought it, having noticed that the cheaper jackets I had been buying didn't last and needed regular replacement. All right? Now, I've had that Columbia jacket for years now. And I probably wore it like 150 days a year when I lived in the mountains. It was my snow jacket. It was my, it's a little chilly jacket. It was my anything jacket. I wore it all the time. I wore that thing like crazy. And guess what? I still wear it. It's, it looks good as new. It looks good as new. And over the like nine years that I've owned that jacket and really, you know, gotten some use out of it, it's probably paid for itself compared to those cheap ones like six times over. It was actually a wise investment to not buy the cheapest thing. Now, this isn't always the case. Belts? A belt's a belt. <laughs> like, it's not always the case, but there are moments where getting, getting the good thing, not being miserly, is actually the wiser financial move. All right, next one. Just because it's on sale doesn't mean you're saving money. If I have to explain this, that's a problem. <laughs> All right, we get it, right? We get it. Like, oh man, I saved so much money on this shirt. It was 60% off. Like, oh, cool. Did you need that shirt? No. Oh, then all you did is spend money that you didn't need to spend. Like, that's not saving anything. All right. The last one here. We're wrapping it up. What are those dollars you're spending producing? See, when we spend money, it results in more than just a receipt and a new item under your arm. That money supports people. It supports causes. It helps pay the rent for the one who produced it. It helps buy food for the person you interacted with. There are a lot of companies now, and we, you probably have one that comes to mind, when, that when you buy their product, they provide something uh, for an impoverished or at-risk community or something like that. And that's great. But I also want to challenge all of us, encourage us to consider 
how many people are benefiting from the profit of this purchase that you just made? Who's benefiting? What are they doing with it? This stuff matters. Consider it. Like, and this is, this is more from personal experience again. Like, sure, you can get it on Amazon. But maybe it's better to purchase that item from a local store for a dollar or two more because that profit hits the pockets of a few more people. Like, think about what you're doing with your money, how you're spending it, and then what that money's doing, what that profit's doing, where it's going, who it's helping. Because every dime you spend produces something beyond you. What is it producing? All right, band, if you guys want to make your way up. Verse 24, we'll end here tonight. No man can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Either God is the master of your lives and material wealth, or your material wealth is, (laughs) or you are, or things that really are quite shallow. There's no in-between. What is the trajectory of your life? What do your finances tell you about it? As the verses that follow these ones we've just read detail, there's no place for worry in the kingdom of God. If we really believe that he is king, we'll live like it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you've provided so generously. Lord, may we not be miserly or frivolous. Lord, help us realize the potential that you have poured into this place and these people. May we be people who who truly believe that you are who you say you are. That one day you will come back in victory and every knee will bow. And may we have the wisdom to bow our knees before that day comes. Submit ourselves. Submit our safety, our security, everything we have to you. Our desires, our wants, our impatience. May we submit it to you and may we trust you wholeheartedly, knowing that you're good, that your eyes are upon us, you see us, you know what we need. Lord, give us the wisdom, even just tonight, tomorrow, next week, with each situation, with each interaction, to recognize what is heavenly-minded and what isn't. And may we have the self-discipline and the self-awareness to make choices that align with the people that we are, the subjects of your kingdom, your ambassadors, your emissaries in this world bringing your hope and love and peace, your prosperity. Lord, may you be lifted high in everything we do and everything we spend. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We build our lives upon who you are and what you say about us. In Jesus' name, amen.